As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Can't get enough true crime horror story? Check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash truecrimehs for early access to ad-free episodes, exclusive bonus episodes, and patron-exclusive merchandise. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support the show and help us bring you even more content. Thanks for listening, and let the night roar. True Crime Horror Story contains extreme violence and adult subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. host, J.D. Horror, and this is True Crime Horror Story, Season 2, Episode 6, The Ripper. Part 1, Jack the Ripper. He stalked the alleyways at night, hidden in the shadows, slinking from one victim to the next with only violence and murder on his mind. He targeted the weak and the lonely, the dregs of society that no one would truly miss. The brute was especially fond of the grimy, impoverished slums of Whitechapel in London's East End, where approximately 76,000 people lived in abject poverty. With 233 common lodging houses located in the East End, nearly 8,500 individuals a night sought shelter from the labyrinth of damp bricks and cobblestone. Eight pence would get you a room with two beds, four pence would get you one bed, and two pence would earn you a spot along a rope in the hallway to sleep standing up. As uncomfortable as it was, it was still better than the cruel streets that awaited them outside. Many of the unlucky souls within the lodging houses were prostitutes. Whitechapel was home to about 1,200 prostitutes in the 1880s, working within the maze of streets and alleys. As expected, 
London's East End was incredibly hard to police, and crime, public drunkenness, and prostitution were commonplace. In the fall of 1888, the unfortunate citizens of Whitechapel were especially wary of walking in the tangled streets at night. Known as the Autumn of Terror, Whitechapel alone saw the brutal deaths of five women within a three-month span. The Whitechapel murders, as they were dubbed, actually saw the deaths of 11 women in total, killed between April 3, 1888 and February 13, 1891, but only five of these brutal slayings are referred to as canonical, as belonging to one murderous, mysterious man. He called himself Jack the Ripper. Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. What a joke about that leather apron gave me real fits. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave a lady no time to squeal. <laughs> How can they catch me now? I love my work and I want to start again. You'll soon be hearing more of me and my funny little games. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for a jolly. Keep this letter back until I do a bit more work. Then give it out straight. My knife is so nice and sharp, I want to get it to work right away if I get the chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands, curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. <laughs> While many who study the Ripper murders, Ripperologists as they're called, believe that Martha Tabram was the first victim of Jack the Ripper. Her murder in George Yard on August 7, 1888 is not always included with the other canonical five. Though brutal, her wound patterns were different than later victims, who had been slashed and disfigured rather than simply stabbed, though Martha Tabram's murder was anything but simple. A man named John Saunders Reeves found Martha's body slumped over in a stairwell stabbed 39 times and surrounded by a pool of blood. Later examination of her many wounds shown that she had been stabbed seven times in the lungs, twice in the spleen, once in the heart, five times in the liver, and six in the stomach. The murder that most Ripperologists believe was Jack the Ripper's first occurred on Friday, August 31, 1888, on Bucks Row. Marianne Nichols, also known as Polly, was a 43-year-old down-on-her-luck alcoholic who spent the last of her daily earnings on gin, rather than saving enough for a room for the evening. With nowhere to sleep for the night, she decided to walk the streets alone, hoping to earn enough money for a bed in a lodging house. Her body was found in the doorway of a horse stable at 3.45 a.m. by a man named Charles Cross, who couldn't discern whether Polly was drunk or dead. Another man on his way to work, Robert Paul, encountered Cross in the alley shortly after. Unsettled by the sight of the unconscious, or quite possibly dead woman, the men decided to continue on their way to work and agreed to tell the first constable they met about what they had seen. Polly's body was discovered minutes after Cross and Paul left the scene by police constable John Neal. Shining his lantern towards the woman, 
Neil could see that her neck had been slashed. In fact, her throat had been cut so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Another officer, Constable John Thane, arrived on the scene at about 4 a.m. and was ordered by Neil to fetch Dr. Rees Ralph Llewellyn. Polly's body was taken by ambulance to the mortuary for further examination, and Dr. Llewellyn was shaken to the core by what he saw. Beneath her clothes, which had masked her extensive wounds, Dr. Llewellyn found that the killer had not only stabbed Polly in her abdomen, he had mutilated her, ripping her open from pelvis to breastbone, disemboweling her in the process. Days later, on September 8th, the brutal killer struck again. At 6 a.m., the body of Annie Chapman was found in the backyard of a home on Hanbury Street in Spitalfields. John Davis, who lived at 29 Hanbury Street, was on his way to work when he descended the stone steps that led to his backyard. He was met with a grisly sight. Annie's body was sprawled along the fence between the neighboring backyard, her skirts lifted above the waist, and knees pulled to the chest. Davis ran for the streets and shouted for help, calling on three workmen to find a constable. Inspector John Chandler was a lucky officer who arrived on the scene, which had, by now, grown crowded with onlookers. Chandler sent for Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who arrived 20 minutes later. Polly Nichols' wounds were bad. Annie Chapman's were worse. Her throat had been slashed from left to right, and she had a large gash in her abdomen, which had been laid entirely open. Her intestines were pulled out and placed over her right shoulder, still connected to her body. Her uterus had been cut out, and the upper portion of her vagina and two-thirds of her bladder were missing. Did the killer have medical knowledge? Was he a surgeon, perhaps? Or maybe he was a slaughterman, accustomed to slicing and dicing meat daily. Adding confusion to the gruesome investigation, Annie's belongings, including a comb and two pills in an envelope, had been arranged around the yard. But there was also a clue left behind, a leather apron. This led to the name Leather Apron being used to describe the killer in the streets and in publications such as the Star newspaper. Unfortunately, for a man named John Pizer, this was also his nickname, and he was promptly arrested. His alibi was later confirmed, however, and the apron was found to belong to another resident of number 29, so Pizer was eventually released. The investigation continued, and the people of Whitechapel remained in fear. On Sunday, September 30th, 1888, their fears were realized when the next grisly murder took place, and it was more brazen than anyone could have expected. In the early morning hours in Dutfield's yard, Louis Dimeschutz was steering his cart near the International Workingmen's Educational Club when he came upon a woman lying face down in the street. He alerted the men inside the club who came out to check on the woman. Upon the sight of blood and hearing the terrified scream of Dimeschutz's wife, the men quickly spread out and called for police. Constable Henry Lamb arrived on the scene and quickly summoned Dr. Frederick William Blackwell. The doctor's assistant, Edward Johnston, arrived first and gave Elizabeth's body a cursory examination. She was still warm to the touch, save for her hands, and her pale face was surrounded by a pool of blood. Her left carotid artery had been sliced open, but unlike the previous victims, the cut across Elizabeth's throat had been the only wound suffered. She wasn't mutilated like the others had been, or would be because Jack the Ripper wasn't done yet. A second murder took place early that same morning. The body of Catherine Eddowes, a divorcee fond of drinking alcohol, was found at 1.45 a.m. in Mitre Square by Police Constable Edward Watkins, who had been walking his usual beat on the east side of London that evening. He was taken back by the grisly sight, 
and he later would remark that Catherine had been ripped up like a pig in a market. Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown arrived on the scene shortly after 2 a.m. to examine Catherine's body. Like Annie Chapman, Catherine Eddowes was found lying on her back with her skirts pulled up to her waist. Her later autopsy at the Golden Lane Mortuary, however, revealed that she had suffered the most extensive and atrocious wounds of the Whitechapel murders thus far. Catherine's neck had been sliced so deeply that her head was all but decapitated, and so swiftly that she likely didn't have time to cry out. Her abdomen was torn open in a jagged fashion, and her intestines were pulled out and placed over her right shoulder. They were nicked open in the frenzy, and a smear of fecal matter was left behind her shoulder. Another piece of intestine was cut from her body and found placed between her left arm and side. Only a small stump was left from where her uterus had been removed, and her left kidney was missing. If Jack the Ripper killed both Stride and Eddowes in the early morning hours of September 30, it's speculated that he would have had less than nine minutes to do so. Some researchers believe that Elizabeth Stride might not have been a victim of the Ripper, due to her lack of mutilation. Others, however, believe that the Ripper was interrupted while attacking Elizabeth by dime shoots entering the alley, and fled before finishing the job. He later found Eddowes to complete his horrific crime. For this reason, these murders are often referred to as the double event. The handling of the murders, however, leaves much to be desired in the search for the true identity of Jack the Ripper. In a passageway on Goldston Street, about a 15-minute walk from where Catherine Eddowes' body was found, a small piece of fabric smeared with fecal matter was found that matched a missing portion of Catherine's apron. On the wall above where the fabric was found, graffiti was scrawled in chalk. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Anti-Semitism was common in Whitechapel, and there was a large population of Jewish refugees and immigrants in London's East End. They were often viewed with suspicion due to their socialist political affiliations or simple unabashed racism. The name, Leather Apron, also evoked anti-Semitism, as many poor Jewish workingmen worked in trades that required leather aprons. With both London City Police and Metropolitan Police working the crimes, confusion often ensued regarding who would take lead in certain situations. The graffiti was a prime example. While City Police Inspector James McWilliam ordered that the writing be photographed as possible evidence, no photos were ever taken, and the graffiti was ultimately scrubbed away on the orders of Metropolitan Police Superintendent Thomas Arnold and Commissioner Sir Charles Warren for fear that it might instigate a riot. It has never been definitively proven whether Jack the Ripper was the author of the message or if it was entirely unrelated to the murders. By this time, the citizens of Whitechapel were not only fearful, they were angry. Men banded together and formed vigilante committees in order to hunt down the killer themselves. The press, too, was eager to spread any and all news related to the killings and receive countless letters regarding the brutal slayings. One such letter, known as the Dear Boss Letter, is one of the most recognized as being attributed to Jack the Ripper. Some researchers, however, believe it was likely written by an ambitious journalist looking to cash in on the sensationalism of the murders. In fact, in 1931, a reporter named Fred Best reportedly confessed to writing Dear Boss in order to drum up business. Nevertheless, the letter is where the murderous moniker originated. Received by the Central News Agency on September 27, 1888. Of the hundreds of letters that were sent to police and the press during the Autumn of Terror, only three are considered to be genuine. Dear Boss, Saucy Jackie, and From Hell.
though Bess also claimed to have ridden Saucy Jackie. Arguably, the most disturbing of the three, From Hell, was addressed to George Lusk of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee and received on October 16, 1888. The letter was sent with a small box that contained half of a human kidney that quite possibly could have belonged to Catherine Eddowes. The letter reads as follows. From Hell Mr. Lusk, Sir, I send you half a kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you, I did. Did have a piece I fried and ate, it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife for took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, Jack the Ripper. Catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. They did not catch Jack the Ripper before the last of the canonical five murders took place. On the morning of Friday, November 9th, 1888, John McCarthy, the landlord of 13 Miller's Court in Spitalfields, sent his assistant, Thomas Boyer, to fetch the rent from his tenant, 25-year-old Mary Jane Kelly. She was six weeks behind in payments. Boyer attempted to catch Mary Jane before she left for the day and knocked twice on the door before walking around to the other side to see if he could spot her through the window. He was surprised to see that the window panes had been broken. Carefully, he pulled the curtains back to have a look inside and spied what appeared to be two lumps of meat sitting on the nightstand. On the bed was the mangled corpse of Mary Jane Kelly. Boyer quickly fled to fetch his boss and the two returned to inspect the room further. McCarthy was sickened by what he saw and sent Boyer to alert the police. He returned with Inspector Walter Beck and Detective Walter Dew. The officers were utterly shocked by the grotesque scene inside, and quickly summoned Inspector Frederick George Aberlein, who was in charge of the Ripper case. Dr. Phillips arrived around 11.30 a.m. Inspector Aberlein wanted bloodhounds to sniff the area before entering the room, so they waited outside for two hours before it was finally communicated to him that there were no bloodhounds available, as the previous two, Burgho and Barnaby, had been reclaimed by their owner. At 1.30 p.m., Superintendent Arnold finally ordered the door to 13 Miller's Court be broken down. Although the officers had caught a glimpse of the carnage inside through the broken windows, they were not fully prepared for the hideous scene that awaited them once the door was finally opened. There was a fire burning in the fireplace, and Mary Jane's boots sat in front of it. Her clothes were neatly folded on a chair. She was lying on her back on the blood-soaked bed, nude, with her legs spread open. The skin had been ripped from her thighs. Her face had been severely mutilated. Her eyebrows, cheeks, and lips slashed. Her right arm was almost torn completely from her torso, and her body was utterly eviscerated. Her internal organs had been pulled out, her breasts sliced off, and pieces of her body had been placed around the room like macabre mantelpieces. Like the other victims, her entrails had been pulled out and placed on the right side of her body, her head was resting on a bloody pillow of body parts, including her uterus, kidneys, and one of her breasts. Her heart was missing. The lumps of meat that Boyer had spotted through the windows were, in fact, piles of skin that had been sliced from Mary Jane's body, which was skin from neck to thigh, exposing her ribs and femurs. It was obvious that Mary Jane's murder had been more frenzied than the others. The Ripper had taken his victim in a private room with extra time to extend his brutal attack. He took his time with her. Mary Jane Kelly's murder is often considered to be Jack the Ripper's swan song, 
Although the Whitechapel murders continued through February 1891, none of those that occurred after November 9, 1888, are attributed to Jack the Ripper. But why did he stop? Serial killers seldom quit murdering on their own. Did Jack the Ripper get caught for another crime and end up in prison? Did he end up in an asylum? Perhaps he died, or simply moved away. It's impossible to say, because to this day, more than 130 years later, we still don't know who he was. Both professional and amateur sleuths alike have suggested approximately 140 different individuals as possible suspects, but no one has ever been definitively proven to be Jack the Ripper. Likely, no one ever will be. His brutal, murderous spree in the East End of London in the autumn of 1888 will forever remain the stuff of monstrous, murderous legend and lore. The legend of Jack the Ripper. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Part 2. The Ypsilanti Ripper. In the late 1960s, the Ann Arbor-Ypsilanti area of Michigan was terrorized by a series of murders of young, attractive college girls. These crimes were committed with an unspeakable level of violence towards the victims. This was before the modern serial killer had emerged, making these crimes all the more shocking for the time. The strangest part of all was that the person accused of committing this series of murders was a 23-year-old college student named John Norman Collins. There's also evidence that Collins may have had the help of a friend or two, including Arnie Davis, a co-member of the EMU Ski Club and classmate of Collins, and many of his victims, and quite possibly a man named Andy Manuel. John Norman Collins was born on June 17, 1947, in Center Line, Michigan. His father abandoned him and left his mother as a single parent. She then married an abusive alcoholic. His stepfather once threw him across the car at his mother. On another occasion, his stepfather used him as a shield when he was being confronted by a drunken man with a gun. He beat John, giving him a serious concussion at least once. His mother and stepfather divorced when John was four years old. She then married another man, William Collins, and moved to Detroit. He adopted all three of the children, but this didn't give them any stability. William was an abusive alcoholic, just like their earlier stepfather. This marriage lasted until John was nine, at which point he, his mother, and his siblings moved to a nice neighborhood. He was described as a polite yet timid young man. He made good grades and played sports. He attended St. Clemens High School, where he was an honor student, tri-captain of the football team, president of the C Club, and star pitcher of the baseball team. He dated regularly. Many of the people who knew him said he was quiet, polite, respectful, and nice. However, his girlfriends claimed that he was angry most of the time. He was sexually aggressive, which quite possibly might have been the motive for killing his victims. John enrolled in Eastern Michigan University, pursuing degrees in education and the arts. He was president of the ski club, where he met his friends Andy Manuel and Arnie Davis. The three of them teamed up to commit burglaries and perhaps other more violent crimes. For example, Later it was revealed that Collins had brutally attacked his sister when he came home to find her and her boyfriend having sex. Both the boyfriend and his sister ended up being hospitalized. Although he did that by himself, it was the first indication that his family can recall of seeing the extent of his violent nature as an adult. He got good grades, played other sports beyond skiing, and was part of the Theta Chi fraternity. After two years in the fraternity, he was forced to leave for suspicions of stealing. 
Despite casual acquaintances harking as to his politeness around women, close female acquaintances who had dated Collins described him as an aggressive, short-tempered, oversexed individual who had occasionally engaged in violence against women, including one instance in which he had raped a woman who resisted his advances. Moreover, several of these female acquaintances divulged that Collins would become enraged upon learning that a woman was menstruating. One woman revealed to police that on one occasion, when Collins began groping her breast, she had informed him that she was experiencing her period. In response, Collins had yelled, That is really disgusting! before angrily walking out of her apartment. The murders began when John Collins was just 20 years old, and his victim was even younger. The first victim of the Michigan co-ed killer, Mary Fletzer, 19, from Willis, Michigan. She was in school at EMU, just as Collins was. On the night of July 8th, she told her roommate that she was going to go for a walk. She needed some air. It was too hot and stuffy in their room. She was reported missing on July 9th, 1967, without a trace. Over a month later, 15-year-olds Russell Crisovan Jr. and Mark Lucas found her by the side of the road. They were working on the farm when they heard a car drive away and smelled something foul. They went over to the area and the car was gone. They found a shapeless carcass with various types of bugs and flies all over it, so they called the police. The body had no clothes and was lying on its side with its face down. Fingers on one hand were gone. The corpse had no feet and was dead for about a month from that date. She'd been stabbed about 30 times in the chest and was apparently brutally beaten. A plastic sandal was found by the crime scene. The body was identified as Fledzer by her mother. Her remains were taken to a funeral home. The body had been moved at least three times after her death, although police were not sure until later that the person who had moved the corpse was the killer. At first, they assumed animals could have been responsible. Still, they did know that there was a possibility that the killer had returned to the scene of the crime. Though no pictures have been released of Mary Flesser's remains, we know how many weeks her body was left outside, and we know due to the climate, with almost four weeks in the sun, decomposition would have been progress past bloating, the state of purge, and most of the skin would be gone. The stench would have been powerful. This excerpt from the well-researched Michigan Murders by Edward Keyes describes how unpleasant it was for the police who came upon her body in one vivid passage. When Deputy Cola turned back to the other deputy, his features were contorted. He pointed toward a clump of growth a few feet ahead of him. Freeman couldn't make out anything at first. He moved closer. Then he saw it, part of a bare arm protruding from the grass, elbow bent at an awkward angle. Skin grayish, slack lifeless. Freeman edged past Cola to the spot. The arm was part of a body, which appeared to be nude. The stench was awful, but Freeman made himself bend and part some of the tall grasses. Almost instantly, he had to recoil. It was a woman. It was hard to tell how old, because not only was much of the thin, pale body slashed and caked with blood, but from the bosom and upper arms to the head, the skin was black, peeling with rot. Where the face would have been, was a fearsome charcoal death mask. The mouth frozen open in a wide, silent scream. The teeth huge and sneering like a skeleton's because the lips were gone. The sunken eyes were also open, showing only blank whites. She had been stabbed several times in the chest and her fingers and feet had been cut off. Police theorized that she had been raped, but due to the condition of the body, they couldn't determine this for certain. 
A year elapsed before the second victim was abducted on July 1st, 1968. The name of the victim was Joan Shell, a 20-year-old EMU student. She was an art major at Eastern Michigan University. The victim was discovered five days later in Ann Arbor by a couple of construction crew members walking along the side of the road. Schnell had been raped and stabbed no less than 47 times, and her miniskirt was wrapped tightly around her neck. Although no one took particular notice of this at the time, autopsy confirmed that she had been menstruating at the time of her death. It was later established by investigators that each and every victim had been menstruating at the time of their deaths, and they theorized that this may have been a factor in the sexual violence exhibited upon the victims. Detectives learned that she had been seen with fellow student John Norman Collins on the night she disappeared, but Collins was a personable youth who seemed to have a reasonable alibi. Suspicion of Collins lessened after further investigators found that she had last been seen hitchhiking around 10.30 p.m. in front of the student union. Shell had been seen entering a late-model red-and-white vehicle, which contained three other people. Police authorities obviously wanted to question these three men who had given Shell a ride, but they never came forward. While we know that Collins was her killer, the other men in the car were never officially identified. However, at the point of her kidnapping and murder, Collins had already formed a close bond with Manuel and Davies, so it could have been them. The frequent thunderstorms and rain around the times of this murder also contributed to a different moniker, the Rainy Day Killer. While police continued their search for the killer, a fourth victim was discovered. In March of 1969, Marilyn Skelton was a 16-year-old from Romulus that was last seen on March 24th, hitchhiking in front of the Arborland Mall on Washtenaw. Her body was found on Pemberton Drive in the Earhart Subdivision in Ann Arbor. The location of where her body was found was only a quarter mile from the body of the second victim, Joan Shell. This was the most sadistic murder to date, as Skelton's body bore deep wounds. Marlene had received multiple crushing blows to her head, and a stick had been rammed deep into her vagina. Multiple large welts and cuts showed that she had been flogged with a heavy strap or belt before she died. A garter belt was twisted around her neck, and Chief Crassney stated that it was the worst crime scene he had seen in his 30 years with the department. In the book, Terror in Ypsilanti, the author notes not only did she get the worst beating of all the victims from the killer, she also received the worst beating in the press. Marlin was an excellent student, and was on the honor roll. But because she had a history of drug use, both amphetamines and LSD, not all police officers took this murder as a further indication that a serial killer was at work. They were eager to blame it on a drug deal. Although the cops followed up on every tip and rumor that came in, the sheriff Douglas Harvey was convinced that she was a victim of their serial killer, and insisted they work on the case as such. By this point, a massive investigation was ongoing, as fear continued to grip the community. The police departments of Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, along with the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department and Michigan State Police, dedicated many detectives in search of the elusive killer. The sheriff worked closely with Ann Arbor Police Chief Walter Krasny and Washtenaw County Prosecutor William Delhi, as well as other investigators and attorneys from various other agencies. Harvey said every rumor was taken down and checked out. In those days, we had no database to look at. We just had legwork from police officers getting information. Five entire file cabinets were eventually filled with thousands and thousands of cards with tips on them. Officers followed up on every single one. Sadly, their hunt for the killer continued on, and more bodies were discovered. 
Thirteen-year-old Don Basom was an eighth grader at West Junior High School in Ypsilanti and the youngest of the Ripper's victims. Don was last seen alive on April 15, 1969, while walking down the Penn Central Railroad tracks, which was the shortcut to her home on LaForge Road. She had promised her mother she would be back home before dark. Sergeant William Stenny of the Ypsilanti City Police Department received a call at 12.46 a.m. on April 16, 1969, from Miss Cleo Basom, saying her daughter had been missing since late afternoon on Tuesday. Mrs. Basom said that Don was given a ride by her uncle to the corner of Cross and River Streets in Depot Town early in the evening to meet a boyfriend by the first name of Earl, last name unknown. She was last seen wearing a white plastic jacket, white cotton blouse, and blue stretch pants. The next morning, Don's abused and naked body was found on the east edge of Gale Road. Her torso bore over a dozen slash marks. She had been raped and strangled with an electrical cord, and her breasts had been cut off. Unsurprisingly, Sheriff Douglas says he still thinks about all the victims every night, but Don is the one that makes it hardest for him to get to sleep. Don was a sensible girl, and it's unlikely she would accept a ride from a stranger so close to her home, less than a hundred yards, though she was known to hitchhike. More likely, someone laid in wait for Don and overpowered and incapacitated her, or perhaps she knew and recognized the person that she got into the car with. Either theory ends up with Don being held captive in a psychopath's car. She was tomboyish and liked to wrestle with her older brothers in the front yard of their house, so she would have probably put up a struggle and offered some resistance to being captured. Her fighting nature, and pieces of evidence like the shoes she left behind, and other evidence of clothing being ripped or torn off, would have helped lead detectives to a break in the case. By following a trail of items like shoes and buttons that were thrown out of the window by Dawn, or perhaps her abductor, she was a smart girl, and she may have purposely left these clues about where she was being taken. They searched on foot and on horseback for miles around her house, and the site of her body. Finally, the police made a break. They found the site where Dawn was killed. It would turn out that some of the other girls had been murdered there as well. The site was an abandoned farmhouse. It was just outside Ypsilanti, and close to where another of the bodies had been found. While searching, the officers discovered some women's clothing, jewelry, and a black electrical cord, the exact type of cord that was used to strangle Dawn. Just as importantly, they discovered blood. Knowing that there were signs the bodies had been visited and moved around as many as three times after their deaths, the cops hoped they could stake out the farmhouse. They hoped the killer would return to clean up or perhaps relive his crimes. After a week of watching, nothing unusual was observed. Investigators went into the farmhouse once again and much to their surprise, found another earring in the basement that was later confirmed as belonging to Marlon Skelton, and a piece of a blouse that belonged to Don Basin. This would indicate that either the original search had been quite sloppy, or that the stakeout itself hadn't been effective. The barn mysteriously caught fire a week later and was destroyed, but the culprit for that accidental arson had been a reporter trying to get a look at the crime scene. He passed a polygraph, and investigators found no other evidence that he had been involved in any of the homicides. On Saturday, June 7, 1969, Alice Elizabeth Calum, 23, a University of Michigan fine arts graduate student, went to the depot house at 416 South Ashley Street in Ann Arbor to celebrate the birthday of a local musician friend. When Alice left her apartment in a house at 311 Thompson Street, she was nicely dressed in a purple blouse, a white miniskirt, pantyhose, and a pair of brown loafers. She was wearing her contact lenses and not her eyeglasses. 
Alice was carrying a new pair of purple dress shoes she had recently purchased at Jacobson's in downtown Ann Arbor because she didn't want to get them wet. Alice was also wearing a distinctive, multicolored, horizontal striped raincoat to protect her from the likelihood of more rain. Alice's partially nude body was found in Ann Arbor Township off of US-23 and North Territorial Road in two feet of tall grass, just off of a lane that ran through abandoned farmland. Three teenage boys had come across her lifeless body on Monday the 9th at around 3.40 p.m. Alice Kalem of Portage, Michigan, was last seen on June 7, 1969, at a party in the depot house in Ann Arbor. She was dancing with a young man with long hair. She was found shot in the head, stabbed in the chest, raped, and clothes scattered all around her body. She'd been menstruating, and her bloody panties had been shoved into her mouth, and her shoes were missing. Her longtime best friend, who had just become her boyfriend, who had been with her the night before, said, When I learned that Alice's body had been found, I drove to the police station, and they held me overnight telling me that I was their prime suspect in her murder. They took me to the morgue to identify her body before they even called her parents. They pulled out the slab, and she had been outside for a couple days. Her eyes were wide open, her skin discolored, and a bullet wound was visible in her forehead. I identified Alice, and the cop said to the morgue tech, Go tag her, and walked off coldly. That vision of Alice dead on the morgue slab has haunted me for 45 years. I still think about it frequently. It's something I'll never forget. With the latest murder, Governor William Milliken, in a press conference, stated that everything that could be done to help the local police would be. He further stated that Colonel Frederick Davids, commander of the state police, was personally in charge of the Michigan State Police portion of the investigation. Governor Milliken's 21-year-old daughter was a junior at the University of Michigan. The officers investigating the killings were so desperate for a break in the cases that they spoke of contacting a criminologist who was a nationwide expert in the field. Chief Krasny stated, It's apparent we need a new, fresh look at the crimes. It's possible a trained, competent criminologist can, through his experience and training, give us a fresh approach. I'm certainly willing to try it. Desperate for help, a reporter contacted Peter Harkos, a well-known psychic. The reporter told police that there was a real chance that this man could be of great help, although he was probably thinking there was a chance it could make for a great story. And after all, the police had said they'd been willing to accept help from anyone. Sheriff Harvey, not much of a believer, still chuckles when the topic of Harkos comes up. He recalls the Dutchman showing up at a crime scene and wanting to see the body before police. I said he wasn't going anywhere near that body until we're done. The sheriff remembers the psychic being allowed to look around the area after the body was removed. He goes down and puts his hands where the body was and does a bunch of other mumbo-jumbo. I thought to myself, you're weird. Karen Sue Bienemann was an 18-year-old EMU freshman attending summer classes. She was reported missing on July 31, 1969. Three days later, her nude body was discovered face down in a wooden gully alongside the Huron River Parkway. A medical examination revealed Bainemann had been extensively beaten around the face and her body, with some lacerations being inflicted so severely that sections of the skin had been removed, exposing subcutaneous tissues. She had received extensive skull and brain injuries, which had been inflicted with a blunt instrument and had been forced to ingest a caustic substance, and her neck, shoulders, nipples, and breasts had been burned with the same caustic agent. As had been the case with previous victims, her killer had placed a section of cloth in her throat to muffle her screams throughout her torture. 
Upon retracing Karen Sue Binneman's movements on the day of her disappearance, police questioned the proprietor of a wig shop Binneman had visited immediately prior to her disappearance, a Mrs. Diana Joan Goshi. Goshi recalled Benjamin visiting her store to purchase a $20 headpiece in the early afternoon of July 23rd. She also recalled having observed a young man with short, side-parted dark hair, wearing a horizontal striped sweater, waiting on a blue motorcycle outside the shop as Benjamin made her purchase. Reportedly, Benjamin herself insisted Mrs. Goshi observe the man with whom she had accepted a ride, stating that she had made two foolish errors in her life. Number one, purchasing a wig. Number two, accepting a ride from a stranger, before stating, I've got to be either the bravest or the dumbest girl alive, because I've just accepted a ride from this guy. Mrs. Goshi then observed Benjamin climb onto the motorcycle before the young man with whom she had accepted the ride drove away. The description of the young man with whom Benjamin had last been seen alive with was heard by a patrolman named Larry Mathewson, who believed the person described to be one John Norman Collins a former fraternity member who had been previously interviewed but eliminated from police inquiries, and who he himself had seen riding his motorcycle around the Eastern Michigan University campus on the afternoon of July 23rd. When Mathewson questioned Collins on July 25th as to his movements two days earlier, he admitted that on the date in question he had been riding his Triumph Bonneville in the vicinity, and that he had stopped to converse with a former girlfriend of his while doing so. The former girlfriend was able to provide Mathewson with two very recent photographs of Collins. When Mathewson showed these photographs to both Mrs. Goshi and her assistant, Patricia Spaulding, both women were adamant that the man in the photographs was the same individual with whom Benjamin had been last seen alive with. Collins' uncle, State Police Sergeant David Leake, had been on vacation with his family at the time of Benjamin's disappearance, and had only returned home on July 29th, three days after the discovery of her body. Throughout their vacation, Collins had been temporarily residing in the Leake family's Ypsilanti home, having been granted sole access to the house in order to feed their German shepherd. Upon their return from the vacation, Leake's wife Sandra had noted numerous paint marks covering the floor of the family basement, and several items, including a bottle of concentrated ammonia, which could have accounted for the caustic burns around Karen's nipples and arms, some washing powder, and a can of black spray paint were missing from the house. The same day, Leake was advised by investigators of his nephew's suspect status and the level of circumstantial evidence unfolding against him. He invited forensic analysts to come take a look at the basement. Investigators discovered numerous hair clippings, many measuring less than three-eighths of an inch, aside the family washing machine. When questioned as to the source of these clippings, Leake, who had not been informed of the discovery of the hair clippings found upon Benjamin's panties, informed investigators that his wife regularly cut their children's hair in the basement, and that she had done so shortly before the family had embarked upon their vacation. Moreover, the search had also uncovered small bloodstains in nine areas of the basement. Two of these bloodstains were discovered to be type A, the blood type of Karen Sue Benjamin. Evidently, despite Colin's protestations of innocence and denials of even knowing Karen Sue Benjamin, the girl had been in the basement of Collins's uncle at the time of shortly before or shortly after her murder. Upon questioning Collins's co-workers, investigators learned that Collins had repeatedly taken delight in describing details of the injuries inflicted upon each successive victim linked to the Michigan murderer to his female colleagues. He had claimed that these details had been provided to him by an uncle of his named David Leake, who served as a sergeant in the police force. The injuries described by Collins were consistent with those inflicted upon the victims 
which had never been disclosed to the media, and David Leake would inform investigators that he had never told any of this to his nephew. Investigators also ascertained Collins had either been acquainted with most of the victims, had currently or previously lived close to their place of residence, or had likely established possible prior contact to their murder. In the case of victims Mary Flesser and Joan Shell, investigators were able to establish that he had been a neighbor, and at the time of Flesher's disappearance, Collins had actually worked in the office of the Eastern Michigan University, located directly opposite the hallway from the office where Flesher herself had worked. Through interviewing a recent girlfriend of Collins, investigators also learned that he had lived in an apartment complex directly across the road from the home of victim Don Basom. Throughout their courtship, Collins had been a regular visitor to her apartment. The trial of John Norman Collins for the murder of Sue Benjamin opened in Washtenaw County Court in Ann Arbor on June 2, 1970. Collins is solely charged with the murder of Karen Sue Benjamin, as it had been impossible to collect enough evidence to charge him concerning the other cases. Although Andrew Manuel had been given immunity for his possible involvement, he stayed mute during the trial and refused to give evidence against his friend. Andy Davies, the guy who met Collins through the EMU Ski Club, admitted that he, Andrew Manuel, and John Norman Collins committed numerous crimes together, mostly burglaries. He admitted that he had been in the car with John Norman Collins and two others when Joan Shell, the second victim, accepted a ride. He said that he went home and left Collins in the car alone with Shell. He denied knowing anything else about the rest of the cases and denied any personal involvement. The evidence for the prosecution rested mainly on the hair found, with Walter Holtz, a graduate chemist from the health department, testifying that the hairs found on the basement floor were an identical match for the ones found in the panties. There were plenty of crazy twists and turns during the trial. It kept getting set back. Jury selection took forever, with jury members getting mysteriously ill, and Collins' lawyer had a heart attack. Despite objections from the defense, the jury had been swayed, and John Collins was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. His incarceration was also fairly dramatic. In 1979, Collins attempted to escape from the maximum security prison at Marquette. Collins, along with six other inmates, dug a two-foot-wide tunnel over 19 feet underneath the prison. The prisoners had another 25 feet to dig for freedom, but were thwarted by a guard who found the tunnel entrance. Collins was then forever returned to his cell, where the Ypsilanti Ripper continues to rot today. Where the face would have been was a fearsome charcoal death mask. The mouth frozen open in a wide, silent scream. The teeth huge and sneering like a skeleton's because the lips were gone. Part 3. The Eyeball Ripper I will hear no evil. I will speak no evil. I will see no evil. I will hear no evil. I will speak no evil. I will see no evil. I will hear no evil. I will speak no evil. I will see no evil. I will hear no evil. I will speak no evil. I will see no evil. I will see no evil. See no evil. See no evil.
Charles Frederick Albright was adopted as an orphan by loving parents Fred and Deli Albright. His doting adoptive mother Deli was a schoolteacher who believed in discipline and hard work when it came to her students. Her son was a different story. Deli strived to give her son the life that he didn't have before the Albrights took him in, but in her efforts to do so, she spoiled the boy and was definitely overbearing and overprotective. Charles was a strange and impulsive boy. As a child, he would often set out to escape the family home, asking strangers to lift him over the fence and out into the street so he could explore. This could have ended really badly had one of these passers-by had the natural predilections for violence that Albright would display later on in life. However, and quite unfortunately for three Dallas-area sex workers, that wouldn't be the case. Though Charles did display some of these problems in his home life, he excelled academically and was even able to skip ahead two full grades. That was until his teen years when his behavior started to take a dark turn. Like many Texans, Albright grew up around guns and hunting. His father bought him his first firearm as a teen and taught him how to stalk and kill small animals. Albright would then take these animals back to his home, where he would perform some amateur taxidermy with the help of his domineering mother. Even as a youth, he aspired to be a taxidermist, though the family was not able to afford the glass eyes that professionals would use to preserve their work's peepers. Simple buttons would have to suffice for his purposes. It was the eyes of the dead that stood out the most to Charles, even as a boy, for the eyes were a window into the soul. At the age of 13, Charles Albright had his first brush with the law, engaging in petty theft and eventually being brought up on charges for aggravated assault. Deli would vigorously defend her adopted son, holding his peers and even the world responsible for his actions instead of placing the blame where it should have lied. By the age of 14, the Albrights bought their son his own property. This was clearly a spoiled mama's boy. In my personal life, I've seen both sides of the coin when it comes to adoption. Having experience with a friend who was adopted, never growing out of this stage of dependence on the ones who tried to overcompensate for his biology, and on the flip side, I was able to fill a necessary void in their lives by adopting my stepchildren, but actually parenting them with everything that comes with it, including holding them accountable for their actions, and their thriving. By allowing Charles to overindulge without consequence and giving him everything he ever wanted, Deli might have done more harm to the boy's psyche than even if he was allowed to remain in the system as harsh as that may sound. Spoiling a child does them no favors in life, but I digress. Despite his run-ins with the law and behavioral issues, Albright was able to graduate high school early at the age of 15 and was accepted into North Texas University. In that same year, his actions would catch up with him. During his first sexual experience with a local prostitute, Charles contracted crabs. This led to his eventual hatred of all sex workers and women in general. At the age of 16, he was arrested after being caught with cash after a robbery and being in possession of several guns. This landed him in prison for a year and blew his chances at NTU. The repercussions of his actions did not deter Albright from a life of crime, and he believed himself to be a master criminal, though he got into serious trouble with the police approximately once every decade. Though he'd blown his shot with North Texas University, after Charles was released from prison, he started at the Arkansas State Teachers College majoring as a pre-med. However, old habits die hard, and Albright was expelled prior to graduation after being caught with a bevy of stolen items, including those which belonged to his professor and also nude pictures that he had lifted from a female student's dorm room. 
By this point, Charles Albright was a criminal, a habitual thief, and a compulsive liar. Rather than trying to appeal his expulsion or attempt to attend another college, Charles falsified a master's degree and medical certificates, going as far as stealing the actual correct documents and expertly forging signatures of the correct staff who had signed off on an actual degree. Though he was now legally an adult at 18 years old, he was still obsessed with the taxidermy projects he had done as a boy, specifically the eyes. He began to steal pictures from a friend of the friend's girlfriend and cut out the eyes, gluing them to a wall alongside those of other girls he had taken from magazines and newspapers. Being the catch that he was, Albright soon found his first serious girlfriend in another student, Betty Nestor. She was a typical college girl from a middle-class family and worked at the principal's office at the Arkansas State College. Charles soon convinced his future bride to steal a set of master keys that he would use to aid him in his thieving escapades. The two eventually married, and Betty became a teacher just like Albright's mother, Deli. While Betty began to mold the minds of Texas youth, Albright continued with his criminal ways, doing everything he could to make money through dishonest means. Before word had gotten around enough to prevent him from doing so, he bounced from teaching job to teaching job, writing on his phony degree. After that, in addition to stealing to get by, he worked as a bullfighter, a hairdresser, a baseball bat manufacturer, and an illustrator, a real jack-of-all-trades. Charles was arrested again in 1961 and charged with receiving stolen goods, but the state didn't have enough evidence for a conviction, and he was able to get off scot-free. By this time, Betty had enough of her husband's conniving ways, and the pair separated in 1965. Albright was again arrested in 1970 for the falsification of official records, his degrees, but only received probation in lieu of jail time. In 71, he was caught forging checks, again avoiding the slammer and only receiving an additional year of probation. Eight years later, in 1979, he was caught again, this time for stealing perfume, and again only receiving an additional year of probation. It wouldn't be until 1980 that the future killer would receive a two-year sentence for stealing from a local hardware store, but he would only serve six months. Throughout his criminal career, Due to his teaching positions and reputation in the community, Charles Albright appeared to his neighbors to be a good man and an upstanding citizen of the Dallas community. He was so well-respected that he was often asked by neighbors to babysit. Those neighbors would be left with guilt and unanswered questions when in 1981, after his mother Deli passed away, Charles was caught molesting the nine-year-old daughter of a neighbor. The girl's parents reported his heinous actions to the police, but somehow, and most shockingly, again, Albright received nothing more than additional probation. In 1985, he was convicted of aggravated sexual assault on a child, stemming from an incident way back in 1979. What kind of punishment do you think he got for this vile act? I'll give you listeners a couple seconds to think about it. That's right, you guessed it, fucking probation. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. By this time, Charles and Betty had been apart for quite some time, and he would meet the second love of his life, a woman named Dixie. He invited her to move in with him, and it wasn't long till she was the sole breadwinner and financial provider for the couple. When Albright's father died, he received over $100,000 in inheritance, but quickly pissed it away, and Dixie was forced to continue supporting the couple by working at a gift shop. Charles's contribution to the family bank account only came in the form of a paper route, a job designed for a kid, and more often than not, he would blow his entire pay on prostitutes, using his route to disguise his transgressions. Death and the process of removing the eyes from an animal had always interested Albright. The obsession eventually turned into his unusual magazine collages. And finally, a fascination with serial killers and photos of mutilated women. By the end of the 80s, Albright's mental state had begun to deteriorate. He no longer cared about petty theft, instead preferring to dwell on his dark fantasies of a metaphilia involving the removal of the eyes of a female corpse. Charles would mow the lawn in nothing but his boxers, and often his wife would hear his indiscernible muttering to himself under his breath. With the dawning of the new decade of the 90s, the man who would become to be known as the Dallas Ripper, the Dallas Slasher, or the moniker we'll give him here on True Crime Horror Story, the Eyeball Ripper, would take his first victim, and his short but terrifying reign of terror would begin. He would choose his victims carefully, fueled by the fire and hatred he had for prostitutes based on his seminal sexual experience and the decreased risk of being caught because he thought no one would come looking for them. On December 13, 1990, the mutilated body of 33-year-old well-known Dallas-area sex worker, Mary Lou Pratt, was found in the Oak Cliff neighborhood. The corpse was lying face up, naked from the waist down, and with her shabby shirt pulled up to expose her bare breasts. She had been sexually assaulted and shot in the back of the head with a 44 caliber pistol. That wasn't the worst part. Mary Lou's eyeballs had been removed so painstakingly that there was not a single mark on the eyelids. The eyes were never recovered. But the killer had left something in their place. Traces of semen were found in the orbital cavity of her face. The crime scene was enough to turn the stomach of even the most grizzled of homicide investigators as they had never seen anything like what had been done to poor Mary Lou Pratt. It wasn't until February 19, 1991, when police knew a madman was on the loose stalking the streets of Dallas, after they found the body of 27-year-old sex worker, Susan Beth Peterson. Susan had been killed nine days earlier. She was shot three times, once on the top of her head, once on the side of her breast, and the final time, point-blank in the back of the head. Like Mary Lou, her eyes had been removed with surgical skill, 
and she was found nude from the waist down, with her shirt pulled up to expose her breasts. Susan's body was dumped in South Dallas, and her eyes were also never recovered. She had been sexually assaulted in the same disgusting method that the eyeball ripper's previous victim had, and again, traces of semen were found in places that no phallus should ever trespass. Word about the ripper had begun to spread. A whisper passed between sex worker to sex worker of a boogeyman preying on the ladies of the night and taking their eyes. And on March 18th, another body was found. This time that of 41-year-old Shirley Elizabeth Williams. Like those before her, her mutilated and naked body lay sprawled in a heap. She had been beaten, shot, and her eyeballs had been removed. This time, however, the eyeball ripper had been a little sloppy, and both hairs belonging to the killer and a used red condom were left at the scene. Investigators began to put pressure on local sex workers for information and fear that they had a bona fide serial killer on their hands. On March 22nd, they got a hit when witnesses, including a survivor of a previous attack, Veronica Rodriguez, came forward tying a beaten-up Chevrolet pickup truck belonging to Charles Frederick Albright to the scene. Police raided his home and seized the truck, as well as his collection of guns, exacto knives, true crime books, and Nazi literature. They found the murder weapon as well, a 44 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver, socks and underwear soaked in bleach, and a red condom similar to that left near the body of Shirley Elizabeth Williams. Hairs found in the Albright family vacuum matched that of Williams as well. Though to any practical person, the facts would seem to overwhelmingly point to Charles Albright as the eyeball ripper. He denied involvement in the crimes, claiming the evidence was purely circumstantial. The Albright home was less than half a mile from a flophouse motel that two of the victims had worked out of, but Charles's girlfriend Dixie gave him an alibi for each and every murder, claiming he was home the entire time. Despite Dixie's claims, police took Albright into custody and began their seven-hour-long interrogation. They indicted Albright for four murders of local sex workers, but weren't able to formally charge him with the crimes until August 21, 1991. They also placed him as their prime suspect in another of other unsolved murder cases in the Dallas area, and two in Arkansas. Those cases have never been reopened, and he wasn't formally charged in connection with them. The fourth murder that the eyeball ripper was charged with was that of another sex worker, Rhonda Bowie, who was murdered in 1988, but had not suffered the same telltale eyeball mutilation that the others had. And those charges were eventually dropped because Albright had a legitimate alibi for the time of the killing. He had been away at a softball tournament when Rhonda had been murdered. Charles Frederick Albright was put on trial for the three murders in December of 1991, but he was shockingly only convicted of the murder of Shirley Williams and sentenced to life in prison due to the lack of hard evidence tying him to the scene of the other crimes. What are the chances of another murderous hemetophiliac stalking Dallas during the same time of Albright's reign of terror? You might think that would be a little far-fetched, but in 1995, with Charles Albright locked behind bars, sex workers began to turn up dead in the Dallas area once again, with a shockingly similar modus operandi. Their eyes had been removed with surgical precision. Could this be a copycat? Maybe. Or just maybe. There were two eyeball rippers stalking the streets of the Dallas area in search for grisly souvenirs. I will hear no evil, I will speak no evil, I will see no evil, I will hear no evil, I will speak no evil, I will see no evil, I will hear no evil, I will speak no evil, 
I will see no evil. I will hear no evil. I will speak no evil. I will see no evil. I will see no evil. See no evil. See no evil. Thanks for joining us for another episode of True Crime Horror Story. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Suggested movies similar to today's cases? For The Ripper, From Hell, a 2001 horror movie directed by brothers Albert and Alan Hughes, based on the graphic novel by Alan Moore. For The Ypsilanti Ripper, a suggested subreddit, Crime Scene, where you can find more of Jessica Shannon's great work. And for The Eyeball Ripper, See No Evil, a 2006 slasher directed by Gregory Dark and starring WWE's Kane. If you like what you hear here on True Crime Horror Story, please subscribe and give us a 5-star review. You can also think about joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash truecrimehs. And then stay tuned after this show on Patreon for the True Crime Horror Story After Show with Dom and JD, as well as early access to ad-free episodes and exclusive bonus content available only on Patreon. This episode features research by Lana McCall, writing by Jessica Shannon of the Crime Scene subreddit, and writing by MR. Music by Mechanical Ghost, The Quiet Type, Public Defecation, and producer LB from the No One Likes Us podcast, and artwork by Nuclear Heat Graphics and Frankensquatch. Sources for this episode's cases are available in the credits section of our website. Has violent crime impacted you or someone close to you? Send us your story at truecrimehorrorstory at gmail.com. True Crime Horror Story. Sometimes truth is more brutal than fiction. Hey guys, it's Gemma here from I Think My Fridge is Haunted, a very creepy podcast for very creepy people. You may recognize me as the voice of Australian murderess Catherine Knight on True Crime Horror Story. And I'm Esther. I may not kill people, but I do love talking about it. If you'd like to try a podcast from across the pond, why not give these two Aussie chicks a listen? You might even learn something. For example, did you know our Bigfoots are called Yowies? Or that one of the world's most famous alien abduction cases came from Melbourne? Join us at I Think My Fridge is Haunted. And don't forget, be creepy, but don't be a creep. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.